I'm not Wayne Broderick. You've probably figured that out by now. My name is A.J. Rinaldi. For those of you that don't know me, I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And every so often, I have the privilege of taking this stage. Most often, in fact, pretty much every time in my ministerial career, I have taught. I'm more of a teacher than anything else. Today, I'm going to preach. You're supposed to say amen, right? <laughs> amen. Okay. So last week, we celebrated the most significant event in human history. Amen. Yeah. And appropriately, Wayne's message was from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is where we find the clearest statement of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. Now, next week, Wayne officially begins the new series entitled God's Way, and he'll be teaching on the remainder of 1 Corinthians beginning with chapter 11. Yes, last week was pseudo sort of a part of that. Today kind of is too. However, today, we're going to look back and review a few key points from the first 10 chapters of Paul's first epistle to the church at Corinth. I think the underlying current flowing through the church at Corinth uh, was a lack of spiritual maturity. We've already seen how the city itself was a hotbed of arrogance, self-serving behavior, general decadence, and affluence. Does that sound familiar? It does not take a social scientist to look around where we live in the North Dallas area and see how similar our culture is to the culture in Corinth at the time. And much like the church in Corinth, we risk falling into the same traps that Paul was addressing in these first ch 10 chapters. Uh, recently, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal by Peggy Noonan, uh, I think speaks excellently to this subject. She says, I want to write about something I think is a problem in our society that is, in fact, at the heart of many of our recent scandals. It has to do with refusing to be fully adult and neglecting to take on each day the maturity, grace, and self-discipline that are expected of adults and part of their job. That job is to pattern adulthood for those coming up who are looking always for how to do it, how to be a fully formed man, a fully grown woman. She goes on to say there's diminished incentive for people to act like adults. Everyone wants to be cool. No one wants to be pretentious. No one wants to be grim, unhip, to be passed by in terms of style. And our culture has always honored the young, but it has not always honored immaturity. And this applies spiritually as well. Specifically, let's be aware of the danger signs that should cause us to reflect and say, grow up. This morning, I'm going to talk about six specific areas where the Corinthians were clearly failing to grow up as believers. And I'm going to challenge us to examine these issues ourselves to be certain we're living, at least striving to, to be spiritually mature. The first one is actually found throughout the epistle, and it's a timeless problem within the church. Don't be divisive and contentious. Divisiveness and contentiousness indicate spiritual immaturity. In chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, Paul writes, Now I urge you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers, by members of Chloe's household, that there is rivalry among you. 
Now, this wasn't just a friendly rivalry either, like you might see among sports fans. I know we have the whole Cowboys-Redskins thing going on, uh, and as many others as well. Um, seems like nowadays everybody's the Patriots rival. Uh, no, no, this was actually much more serious than that. It was more along these lines. Those of you who know me well know that this is actually not an issue for me because I like both, as I'm sure many of you do. However, this is one of those age-old geek debates that goes on. Some of you don't like either one. That's okay. We'll be praying for you anyway. But, but seriously, these factions were clearly detracting from the central focus of Jesus as Lord. This is the church of Jesus, not the church of Paul or Apollos, is what he's getting at. In chapter 3, Paul admonishes the church, pointing out the immature nature of these divisions. He says, brothers, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, because you were not yet ready for it. In fact, you're still not ready, because you're still fleshly. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and living like unbelievers? For whenever someone says, I'm with Paul, and another, I'm with Apollos, are you not unspiritual people? Churches today fracture and separate over the most spiritually insignificant things, and it's most definitely a sign of immaturity. I don't need to list those things. I'm sure uh, many of you have probably experienced division to some degree within a church at some point in your lives. Thankfully, by and large, we've been spared from that here at Frisco Bible Church, and we need to protect that. So if you haven't experienced this before, keep hold of the unity that we have. Recently, <clears throat> well, in his book, Uncorinthian Leadership, David Starling says this. He says, Paul's desire that the Corinthians be in agreement, literally speaking the same thing, is not just a desire that they stop arguing. It's a desire that they unite together in speaking the message that has been entrusted to them. And the same mind in which he urges them to find agreement is not just any mind, but the mind of Christ. So the unity that Paul's calling for is of a very deep nature. That's why the sermon series covering these first 10 chapters last fall was called All for One and One for All. Perhaps you remember that. The big idea was to be unified, and it did cover these first 10 chapters of 1 Corinthians. So, for those sports fans out there, ESPN has announced the Nashville Predators as the best franchise in all of sports. Some of you may have read this. One of the reasons is how unified the fans are. If you travel to Nashville or you read articles about hockey or any social media posts, whatever you see about it, you'll, you'll see an undying loyalty to the organization. You don't hear fans criticizing this move or that trade, that game. If they're critical, it's usually and rightfully so at the officiating. For those of you who are hockey fans, know exactly what I'm talking about. By the way, it's always been that way even and especially in the early days when they didn't win a whole lot. That's when I had my season tickets. Before they were the best team in the league. Yep, they are now. Win or lose, Predators fans are unified in their love for their team. It's all about the Preds. Oh, would we have such a focus on Christ within the church. May we truly be united for Him. The next area of concern should be and probably will be convicting to many of us. Stop embracing worldly wisdom. 
lean on the power of the gospel. Embracing worldly wisdom and a distorted gospel message indicates spiritual immaturity. So if you're wondering, what does this worldly wisdom look like? Well, if we're not careful, it looks like this. I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about. So many people nowadays look to these things and others as well for validation, verification, to find their identity. If you find your identity and this is more important to you than this, it's time to do some reflection and self-examining. This next passage is such an awesome passage. It embraces the main thing. Paul says, when I came to you, brothers, announcing the testimony of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom, for I didn't think it was a good idea to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a powerful demonstration by the Spirit, so that your faith might not be based on men's wisdom, but on God's power. However, we do speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. See, the wisdom of the world, that wisdom, if we're looking to that wisdom for our validation, our inspiration, our identification, it's about as clear and refreshing as this. It's pretty disgusting, right? Whereas the clear gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified is as breathtaking as this. Which one of those bodies of water would you rather spend your time soaking in? Pretty obvious, probably. Now, the next topic might be sensitive for some of our younger folks, so I will proceed with caution. Nevertheless, here's a fair warning to parents. If you have small kids in here, you may end up answering some questions later today. However, I'm not making apologies for that because this may very well be the most important issue that we discussed this morning. Fight sexual immorality. Don't just flee it. Fight it. Sexual immorality indicates spiritual immaturity. And I'll tell you what, it's a battle. It's a battle. It's a battle most of us face. But very few come forward to get help with. Paul wrote to address a specific situation... But this situation was indicative of the general climate related to this subject. When he said uh, there in chapter 5, it's widely reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is living with his father's wife and you are inflated with pride instead of filled with grief so that he who has committed this act might be removed from your congregation. In Corinth, there were clearly issues. And today, we have the same kind of issues as well as even more opportunities to fall into this trap. In this digital age, no one is exempt, regardless of age, gender, socioeconomic status, your upbringing, your peer influence, it does not matter. Everyone is vulnerable to attack, and it can be a devastating attack on families, in the workplace, obviously for individuals, and even in the church itself. We see it in the news every day. What's ironic is how inconsistent the worldly culture treats the subject of sexual morality or immorality. 
And it's amazing how similar the parallels are from the society that was in Corinth to ours and how impactful their behavior was and how influential the culture was on the church. Now, again, David Starling, uh, in his book, Uncorinthian Leadership, has this to say. He says, within the Corinthian church, this uncritical absorption of cultural values alien to the gospel took a distressingly blatant and shocking form. Paul expresses his bewilderment at the extent to which they have come to exhibit what he would expect of people of the flesh rather than spiritual people. Now, let's understand the significance of fighting this battle, both individually and collectively. Paul continues by saying, run from sexual immorality. Every sin a person can commit is outside the body. That's sort of a sarcastic statement there, like almost as if he could say, you have said that every sin a person can commit is outside the body. He's like, no, on the contrary. The person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, I want to add something very important here. Paul uses some harsh words exhorting the Corinthian church and this acceptance of sexually immoral behavior. Not only here, but later on, we'll see where he uses phrases like remove from your congregation or put away the evil person from among yourselves. Listen carefully. These are unrepentant believers who refuse to change their behavior and seek help. It indicates a consistent stride. It indicates a pattern, not a momentary stumble. I'm going to say that again. It indicates a consistent stride, not a momentary stumble. Grace abounds. If you ever need help in this or any other area for that matter, please reach out to us. We're here to minister to you, not beat you up. You've heard it said before, I'm sure many times, that the church is the only army that shoots its wounded. We're not about that here. So I want to make that real clear. Okay, now that's over with. Deep breath, parents. We can move on to number four. Recognize believers and non-believers should be judged by different standards. Judging the behavior of non-believers indicates spiritual immaturity. You want to know something that makes me sad and ashamed, honestly ashamed, is this. I'm sure, not the puppy. The sad puppy, I mean, it makes me sad, and, and that's kind of in response to that, but the sad puppy photo, that is obligatory to every sermon. Uh, you have to have that sad puppy. It doesn't quite express how I feel. When I see these people who seem to make it their life's mission to alienate every single unbeliever from every single demographic, pushing them further and further away from the good news of the gospel, it actually makes me feel more like this. I get angry. I get angry at missed opportunities, angry at being misrepresented in the public forum, just angry. I love that picture, too. It's so expressive. I'm a dog lover. And some of you might be scared by that. I bet that dog is a real sweet dog until somebody threatened its owner. So in chapter 5, Paul says this. He says, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. 
But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Again, lifestyles we're talking about here. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? But God judges outsiders. Put away the evil person from among yourselves. I want to share a personal story on this topic, and I've shared this story probably a hundred times. So I was just talking to somebody this morning, actually, I was like, did, did, I, did, did I ever tell you this story, or have you heard this story from the pulpit? And he's like, well, I think I've heard that story, but I don't think from the pulpit. I said, well, I'm getting old, my memory's not as good, so I know I've told it many times, but it's a story that really had an impact on my life. And so I know I've told it in classes, so my apologies to those of you who've heard it before, but it's worth hearing again, and I know that there are many of you here who have never heard it. Uh, I had a very good friend in the Army, um, just to give you an idea of how good a friend he was. He, my daughter's 25 years old, and he was there the day she was born with us in the hospital. Uh, he was a buddy of mine that we were roommates together in airborne school. We went through medic school together, and we ended up in the same unit together. We maintained a close friendship throughout the years. Even when we both got out of the Army, we moved to the same region of Tennessee, and we continued to socialize together and, and have a friendship. Now, several years had gone by since I had seen my friend, and I was working for the parachurch organization Evantel at the time and going to seminary part-time when I was called to Atlanta to do some, some business with Evantel. I was going to be there for a few days. So I contacted my friend, and I said, hey, uh, I'm going to be there. You want to get together? And he said, yes, let's get together. We'll have dinner. So he picked me up at the hotel. We're sitting in his car together, just sitting there in front of the hotel, and I was kind of wondering, okay, are we going to go somewhere? What are we doing? And he was really hesitant. He said, AJ, there's, before we do anything, there's just something I've got to tell you. I have got to get this off my chest. He said, and I have been scared all of these years to tell you this because I have so much respect for Dana. Okay, not me, right? Dana's my wife. He said, no, really, but really, I have so much respect for you guys and for your religion. That term, religion, I know you're religious. So I've really been afraid to tell you this because I didn't know how it would impact our friendship. I said, okay, Andy. He, says, he said, the fact of the matter is, AJ, is that I'm gay. I have been, and I, I've had a partner now for several years. I just knew because of your religion, it would probably cost our friendship if I told you that. I said, well, there's a couple things I have to say, two things in response to that. I said, first of all, we have talked about the gospel before. You know where I stand on that. I said, the important thing is where you stand before God. What do you do with Jesus? That's what matters. You talking about the lifestyle that you live and your worldview and how that impacts our friendship, that's secondary to what you do with Jesus. We can't even go to the temporal experience yet until we go to the eternal experience. Now, I'm sure those were not my exact words, but it was probably something to the effect of we've talked about Christ. We've talked about Him crucified, putting your trust in Him, having eternal life, being reconciled to God. That's what matters. We don't come to this subject with the same presupposition. We don't have the same viewpoint. So it would be wrong for me to judge your behavior because you're not a Christ follower by his own admission. I, the standards that we would adhere to as believers, as followers of Christ, he would not consider to be important. I said, that matters. I'm more concerned about you becoming a Christ follower. 
That's number one. So in that respect, you know, that our friendship is our friendship. I said the second thing is this. We have been friends for a long time. We've gotten together on a number of occasions. Whenever we call your place and you're not home, your answering machine picks up, hey, this is Andy and Tony, leave a message. Do you think we're stupid? <laughs> so, so he said, All right, well, you know, kind of the whole sweat off the brow thing. We went out and had a great dinner together, caught up, you know, old. We didn't talk about uh, his lifestyle or anything. We talked to old, shared old army stories and things of that nature. But at the end of the evening, he, he invited me to dinner the next day with he and his partner. And I said, sure, I'll come. So I, of course, assumed that he had clued his partner into who was coming to dinner. This could be like one of those guess who's coming to dinner scenarios. So we're halfway through dinner. We talked about all kinds of other stuff. We, had, we liked the same movies and books and things. And we're in the middle of dinner, and his partner looks up from dinner and says, so AJ, what do you do? Okay, this is going to get interesting. I said, well, I work for a parachurch organization uh, there in Dallas called Evantel, and I attend seminary part-time. He said, seminary? Were you going to be like a priest? I said, no, it's not that kind of seminary. I said, I attend a non-denominational evangelical seminary, my exact words. He said, evangelical? Wait a sec. Are you a born-again Christian? I said, yeah. He said, you're a born-again Christian? Just like that. And I can't make this stuff up. Three times, the third time, he said, you're a born-again Christian. I said, yes, I am. He turned to my friend. He says, Andy, he is nothing like your aunt. <laughs> and sadly, I mean, in the course of the conversation, I was able to share the gospel with both of them again. But, and we had a good discussion. He had some really good questions. It was not combative at all. And I just, I share that story because I'm kind of like the blind squirrel that finds the nut every now and then. That's not, that story's not about me because I was just being myself. I was just in a certain time and a certain place. And I think that the unbelieving world, too often, they do get this image in their mind of the person standing on the street corner with the sign that's going to reject them. Well, what we need to remind ourselves of is that Christ has not rejected them. And he's called us to represent him. Anyway, enough about that, and he's still a good friend to this day, although unfortunately he has not responded to the gospel, but I continue to have conversations with him, and although I haven't seen him in a number of years, I always look forward to getting together. So, we find the fifth issue in chapter 6 now, settle your differences with Christ-like humility. Relying on worldly counsel to settle disputes among believers indicates spiritual immaturity. On this point, Paul is crystal clear. He says, so if you have cases pertaining to this life, now this life, he's, talk, he's not talking about theological and doctrinal differences. He's talking about civil matters. If you have cases pertaining to this life, do you select those who have no standing in the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between his brothers? Instead, believer goes to court against believer, and that before unbelievers? Therefore, to have legal disputes against one another is already a moral failure for you. Why not rather put up with injustice? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you act unjustly and cheat, and you do this to believers. Why not rather be cheated? Wow, these are tough words. Our challenge here is to put love and humility before what we feel is our personal justice, even though we may be justified in our position. But in Christian humility, that is irrelevant. 
Now, this is between believers, okay? It's important to keep that context in mind. I have an excerpt here from an older article in Christianity Today, but it's actually no less relevant and applicable to Paul's overarching theme of Christian unity and where this point falls in place. So Alice Curtis said this, she says, as Christ followers, we are called to live in unity. A suing Christian is usually enticed to take on the adversarial spirit manifested in the legal system. A Christian who sues can become caught up in the system to the extent that he takes on a bitter, self-righteous, and disingenuous mindset. Speaking of adversarial spirit, there is one professional team sport where fighting is allowed. (laughs) Obviously, you figured out by now I'm a hockey fan. Well, that's hockey, of course, and you've no doubt heard the old worn-out joke, and I can't believe I'm going to say it, but you know the joke. I went to a fight and a hockey game broke out. Yeah, ha Okay, actually, though, there's less fighting nowadays, and hockey itself, for those of you who follow it at all, know it requires a tremendous amount of skill. But nevertheless, the rules still apply, even in fighting. Players must drop their gloves and cannot purposely remove their helmet. Fights are only allowed under mutual consent of both players. <laughs> so you might see them jawing back and forth. If any of you ever watch hockey, you wonder, what are they doing? You know, they're like, hey, you want to go? Yeah, let's go. I've heard guys interviewed on this. It's very fascinating. Only two players are allowed in a fight, but multiple fights may take place at once. <laughs> a referee can break up a fight whenever they feel necessary, usually if one player falls to the ice. So if any of you have ever watched hockey, you wonder, what's going on? The one guy falls and then they stop the fight. Why did they wait? There you go. Players respect somewhat of a code as well, that they stop fighting if one player has clearly lost or is hurt. Fights must occur during play, which explains why some fights occur the second the referee drops the puck to start play. (laughs) It's a part of the game. And that's important to understand because there are boundaries that must be respected. So what does any of this have to do with conflicts among Christians? Well, fighting in hockey does end up in a penalty. It does. However, it's an outlet within the context of the game where disagreements are settled on the ice. And it's an old tradition that keeps hockey unique as a rough sport with lots of camaraderie. I know that sounds funny, but hockey players are some of the best guys off the ice, and they have a lot of fun and they have big hearts. No matter how hard they've battled on the ice, when a tournament is over, the handshake at the end is something special because it's usually very sincere. There's lots of mutual respect, and that is unique in professional sports. I'm certainly not advocating here that we settle our differences within the church by fighting. Let me be clear, okay? Although this might be a little fun out there in the backfield. However, isn't it great to settle conflicts in the house, so to speak? There are elders and pastors who can help congregants and one another whenever a dispute arises. We have a council. (laughs) So let's take advantage of that and build upon our unity. All right, finally, practice Christian liberty with discernment. This is number six. Abusing our freedom in Christ indicates spiritual immaturity. In chapter eight, Paul writes... Food will not make us acceptable to God. We are not inferior if we don't eat, and we are not better if we do eat. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. 
Therefore, if food causes my brother to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother to fall. I taught on this subject extensively last year. So if you missed it, go back and check out the sermon from November 26th. It's online on the website. But the big idea goes something like this. Practicing our freedom in Christ with immaturity equals a focus on ourselves. Practicing our freedom in Christ with maturity equals a focus on others. In chapter 9, Paul emphasizes his focus on others. When he says, although I am a free man and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without that law, like one without the law, not being without God's law, but within Christ's law, to win those without the law. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. Now I do all this because of the gospel so I may become a partner in its benefits. Ultimately, to be mature, it means our priorities are leveled to bringing glory to God. To be mature means our priorities are leveled to bringing glory to God. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything, everything for God's glory. Glory up. Glorify the Lord with your life. Bringing glory to God indicates spiritual maturity. As I was preparing this study, I came across this song I thought was really cool. I love the lyrics. It's a song by a a singer named Jonathan McReynolds. Some of you may be familiar with him. He says, I hope you know we're here for a purpose. In spite of what the world says, there's more beyond the surface. And some things are more important. Don't neglect to give honor to the one that deserves it. I kept track of where I spend all of my time, on the phone or online. God, oops, there's no time. No, have I lost my mind? Ladies, fellas, be wise. Just sing the glory up. I really wanted to make this clear. Sing the glory up because it don't belong to nobody down here. Sing the glory up in the midst of praises. He's always near. Sing the glory up past the ceiling, up through the heavens to God. Not me, not him, not her, but who? God gets the glory. Yes, in all you do, please make sure to give God the glory. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul lays out a series of qualities that are essentially the antithesis to all of these issues that we see with the Corinthians. We know this is the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, 22 through 24, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You see, spiritual immaturity focuses on me. Spiritual maturity focuses on God. And ultimately, as we will see over the next few weeks when Wayne begins his series next week, on God's way. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity you've given us to be here to worship you, to praise you, to learn from your word. Lord, I pray that uh, as we take this offering this morning that is uniquely 
for those who call Frisco Bible Church their home, Lord, that we might uh, use it to be blessed and to bless others as wise stewards. As everyone goes from here today, I pray for safety. I pray for inspiration. I pray that we may leave here a mature congregation, Lord, unified truly to bringing glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.